You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Hello, it's Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. As you listen to News Talk 98.7 WOKI, October, as we all know, is Women's Health Month. And we focus on particularly breast and ovarian cancer awareness. Each year in October, we like to discuss women's health with a local health professional to make sure we are armed with the most recent recommendations and that we can remind ourselves or the women in our lives to get those regular screenings. You know, certainly being a proactive part of your health care is essential to detecting and treating cancer. So today we're going to talk about some of the steps the women in our lives can take to make sure that their health is at the top of their to-do list. Our guest today is my good friend, Dr. Stephanie Cross. Dr. Cross is a practicing OBGYN and is the division director of benign gynecology at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. She is one of seven OBGYN academic hospitalists. Did I say that right? That's right. Hospitalists uh, who serve as core faculty for our residency training program. Uh, She has a special special interest in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery with substantial experience in laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Welcome back to More Living, Dr. Cross. Hey, thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. Great to have you with us again. Um, so, Dr. Cross, you're a gynecological surgeon. Yes. How did you become interested in focusing on OBGYN? Um, you know, when I went to medical school, I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, I did not have anyone in my family that was in the medical field, and I got interested in medicine when I was in the third grade, and I read one of those cool little biography books about the Mayo brothers, and uh just sort of got interested in it, and so that's what that's what led to it. And once I got to medical school, again, thinking that maybe I wanted to be a pediatrician, once you start rotating through the clinical services, I found that I was much more surgically inclined, and uh, um, I hovered between, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, general surgery and OBGYN, and the thing that drew me to OBGYN was just you develop a lifetime relationship with a lot of those patients, and uh uh, I, uh, I've been in practice for, this is my 31st year. And so now I still see some, a few patients that I saw 30 years ago and That's had wild. that experience of delivering a kid that I delivered. So, um, a little gray here and there, but it's been lots of fun. And those relationships I think are what's been so special. About yeah. That's an interesting take. Uh, that's a, that's very interesting. Um, it, it seems like so many doctors, like when they went to medical school, they had one thing in mind. Mm-hmm. I know my sister was like that. She was, since the third grade, she wanted to be a thoracic surgeon. Uh-huh. And then she got in medical school in her fourth year. She did a psychiatry rotation and just absolutely loved it. Yep. 
just seems like that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think in, unless you've, you know, got a family with all sorts of different uh, specialties and have a little more insight, you know, you just don't know until you kind of start walking the walk through those rotations. Technology has really been, uh, the, the, the advancement in technology, especially the last five years, but really 10 years, really. But, you're, you know, your area of expertise is minimally invasive gynecologic surgery using things like laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Talk to us a little bit, Dr. Cross, about how the surgical landscape has changed during your career, especially Uh, the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, it it has dramatically. You know, when I started training, we were using the laparoscope. It it was just the beginnings of when we were um, pushing the envelope and developing newer instruments to be able to do more, you know, more than just tie someone's tube with the laparoscope which was what was used for years and years and years and when I trained in the the late 80s and early 90s is when we started pushing toward the surgeons were do starting to develop laparoscopic gallbladder surgery and and uh, laparoscopic appendectomy and for for us for we as gynecologists it um, we used to use stapling devices to help start the process of of doing laparoscopic hysterectomy and then it's just um it has been a snowball since then, and it's revolutionized what we're able to do. I, I have admitted maybe overnight for laparoscopic, extensive laparoscopic hysterectomy patients, sometimes I'll admit maybe one patient a year. I've done probably 12 open cases in the last 13 years because we're just able to leverage our technology now where women are walking out that evening with four or five eight millimeter incisions and crazy back at work in two weeks i mean there's a few physical restrictions but you know our kind of buzz our buzz line is it's not your mother's hysterectomy anymore you know we are really able to (laughs) to avoid those big incisions and and lots of post-op pain all that so it's been it's been fun um and it's those pioneers that we walk in their shoes as these things are developed and we all benefit from it Absolutely. Let's dive into some women's health issues that pop up. You know, many women have things come up, but they let symptoms go, you know, kind of really for a long time without anything that they talk to their physician about. You know, things like a heavy menstrual cycle, abdominal pain, unexpected weight loss or weight gain. Dr. Cross, what things should women really be watching for that can indicate something may be going on that's not normal? Uh, well, certainly, you know, there are lots of benign GYN conditions um, that um, we do see patients um, that, that aren't necessarily life-threatening early on, but certainly affect their quality of life and, and physically how they feel and, and heavy menstrual cycles and lots of pelvic pain. You know, we tend to uh, put up with just a little bit more and then the next year a little bit more and and so on and uh, you know uh, sometimes things could be taken care of at an earlier stage uh, and m- my experience often in these benign situations is after the hysterectomy is completed and they're not you know having iron infusions and blood transfusions and you know, missing days of work and, you know, sleeping on towels and things like that, you know, almost universally 
uh, patients will say, gosh, I should have done that five years ago. But, you know, in, in the real scheme of things, you're ready when you're ready. But I think what happens is is we lose our perspective. A lot of us were brought up in the years of, uh, you know, don't complain, uh, don't be a bother. You know, a, a lot of women won't bring things up just because they they are self-conscious about complaining. And, and sometimes that can be a big problem. And sometimes it's not a giant problem, but it's it really affects their quality of life for a few years. So yeah, crazy no, think- bleeding, lots of pelvic or abdominal pain, you know, certainly things like weight loss, you know, usually that's an alarming thing from a, from a GYN standpoint. But, you know, I would encourage everybody to just at least mention it, you know, and, and we have, uh, you know, we have standard things that we can do to evaluate patients to see whether they need something or not. And sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes we're very much um, capable now of handling a lot of things with just medication. Not everything requires surgery. And I think sometimes patients are apprehensive about even thinking about surgery. And that's another that's another factor in terms of them not bringing it bringing it to our attention well and i know so many women and you know dd of course you know dd well my yes. wife uh-huh. and she's like this but women are raising families they're working they're juggling all these balls and women at least my wife and many women i know they're always focused on other people's needs and concerns yeah. that's and they don't take, you know, so they can sometimes neglect themselves because they're always, does that make sense? Yes, and that is um, that is uh, very true for you know, generations of women. And, you know, we try to um, remind them, you know, it's hard to take care of other people when you don't take care of yourself. And um, so it's important not to th- let things linger and to... Um, intentionally remind yourself to prioritize your own health. Absolutely. We're visiting with Dr. Stephanie Cross as it's Women's Health Month. When we come back, we're going to talk about cancer screenings and prevention and what does the data say now as far as how early as there are a a few disturbing trends that we want to kind of dive into. So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. You can catch us every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. and again, 3 to 4 p.m. You can also catch all of our podcasts Go to BroganFinancial.com, click on radio, or you can go to uh, or Apple, to, what's it called? Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast or uh, Spotify, and you can listen to our shows and our dollars and cents segments. It is Women's Health Month, and we're visiting with uh, Dr. Stephanie Cross, and uh, she's an OBGYN. She's the Division Director of Benign Gynecology at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. And Dr. Cross, it's estimated that one in eight women, so approximately 12.5%, will be diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime. And there are almost 14,000 new cases of invasive cervical cancer diagnosed every year. Let's talk about routine screenings. First off, let's talk about breast cancer. What are the current recommendations? The current recommendations for average women, 
average risk women, which means they don't have an extensively uh, strong family history of breast or ovarian cancer, just the average the average woman is to initiate some type of breast cancer screening, primarily mammography, beginning at age 40. And, um, you know, depending on which national society or preventive task force that you read, most agree that yearly beginning at 40. Um, and then continuing that screening on an annual basis uh, until about the age of 75. Um, you know, typically when we get someone who's entering their mid-70s or so, we start having those conversations about when when do we discontinue t- screening. And some of that, you know, the 75 is not a hard, fast rule. It depends on the patient's physical status and functional status. And in general, screening-type activity, preventive medicine uh, options, you know, we look at what is a reasonable timeline? You know, if a patient has a um, 10-year life expectancy at that point, then we continue screening. And But that is a, that is a conversation that's held individually with each patient, and it's based on their personal health factors and how they feel about things and what we call shared decision-making. So those, those conversations start taking place later on, but... Pretty much for the major, you know from forty to at least seventy or so annual screening for uh, average risk women, for women with a higher family history or some concern about some of the genetic mutations that that increase their risk for breast cancer, um, you know enhanced screening techniques are used for those patients. Sometimes some of those patients are referred to high risk surveillance centers, and we have an excellent one of those at UT Medical Center. Um, so, uh, you know, we try to approach things with each individual patient in determining what's the best, uh, what's the best scenario for, uh, trying to, uh, detect things earlier. Well, according to a, um, a recent study that was released in August in 2019, the highest number of early onset cancer cases were breast cancer. And then from 2010 to 2019, the fastest growing among all early onset cancers were gastrointestinal, but the highest number were of early onset were breast cancer. I guess early onset would be pre-age 40, or would that be pre-age 50? Well, pre-age 50, but but even more so pre-age 40. Okay. Um, and so... Um, and interestingly enough, the same study said the incidence for people over 50 had actually declined. Yeah, we have seen a little bit, you know, we've seen a little decline, and some of that's related to screening, and certainly we've, we've thankfully seen a decrease over the last decade or two in terms of breast cancer deaths, and again, that is related to... Early. Earlier detection, and and then certainly we have better treatments for patients who who do have invasive breast cancer and and metastatic breast cancer. So we've seen, you know, we're moving the needle. Um, but you know, breast cancer, um, it's all about early detection. You know, if you if you catch something, someone who still has localized disease, not metastatic disease in the nodes or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, their five year relative survival rate is 99% for localized breast tumors. In terms of this uh, increase of early onset breast cancer, um, how much do you think is lifestyle driven? I mean, we live in a kind of a toxic environment. Our food, the standard American diet is filled with all kinds of preservatives and processed foods. 
My, you know Mary Caroline, my oldest daughter, yes. and she went. She's been to New Zealand a couple times, mm-hmm. and uh, she, she's actually living over there right now. But she went over there for like four weeks, and she was eating all this rich food, and she lost weight. <laughs> and there's so many. And then you look up. There are so many things that are not allowed preservative-wise in New Zealand or in some countries in Europe that we allow here. Now, then, of course, there's smoking, drinking. How much is lifestyle, in your opinion, maybe leading to some of the early onset increases of breast cancer? Um, you know, there there are some modifiable risk factors, definitely, that, that we look at. And, um, you know, there we, we break them down into modifiable risk factors and non-modifiable risk factors when we're talking specifically about breast cancer. Non-modifiable Things are, you know, certainly your age because breast cancer incidence increases with age, um, your ethnic heritage, uh, your family history. Those are the things that none of us can change. Um, There are the modifiable risk factors are certainly things like obesity and, 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 you know, those, the studies that are required to look at something like that and to be able to pin down causation those take decades, but, you know, we do see higher rates of breast cancer in postmenopausal women who are obese compared to women who are not obese. And, and, and yes, it is uh, disturbing some of the things that are preservatives and pesticides and things like that that we still allow in this country, but being able to track them down individually uh, in terms of causation is difficult, um, but there are, you know, we see higher rates of breast cancer in the United States compared to um, Asia or, you know, Japan. They have a lower rate of breast cancer than than we do. And so, you know, I think certainly um, it's it's going to be hard to track a lot of this down, but, you know, we live life and we're exposed to things and there's no way that it doesn't make a difference. Being yeah, able to does. point the finger is always difficult, though, because those studies are so difficult to do. And it seems like with obesity, uh, I mean, you're going to have more inflammation in your body. Correct. And I would think, and, and, and things like smoking, drinking in excess, mm-hmm. consuming things that are highly processed, they can create inflammation. And I would think inflammation is one of the big... I mean, I'm not a doctor, of course, but I would think inflammation is a big issue in terms of cancer incidence. Uh, there, there are suggestions in that direction. You know, we certainly know that in terms of cardiovascular disease. I mean, there are, there is pretty good data that shows that alcohol in, intake affects breast cancer risk. Um, smoking certainly can as well. You know, smoking, people... I mean, we all know in terms of lung cancer and things like that, but I, I think the general public doesn't understand how much smoking affects your immune system. And when mm. we're talking about the development of cancer and the um, as we walk around, if we have a, 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 a gene that's um, damaged in, in our body and, and our immune system often can and can affect that, but if your immune system is blunted because <clears throat> you're smoking, it's less able to do that. So, um, you know, th- things like we don't draw direct connections between diabetes and and uh, breast cancer, but you know, diabetes and obesity and heart disease and all, all these stuff. things are are intertwined. You know, if you look up the death rate related to diabetes, it's not going to look that high in terms of percentage. 
But if you look at the number of patients with cardiovascular disease and obesity and track it back that way, well, yeah, obviously a lot of them are type 2 diabetics. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, we know that, you know, with our health, one thing feeds into another and it can kind of snowball. Now, I mentioned earlier also about cervical cancer. Uh, 14,000 almost new cases of invasive cervical cancer diagnosed each year. Can you talk a little bit more about cervical screenings? Uh, cervical cancer screening has has drastically changed in the last 10 to 15 years. You know, we've had the pap smear as a screening test since, I don't know, the 50s, I guess, is when that was developed. And that was that's where we take cells from the cervix and the pathologist looks at those cells on, on, uh, um, under a microscope. And, you know, it's been one of the greatest home runs in terms of screening for cancer <clears throat> in the history of medicine. And, it, and it's been fabulous, but it's gotten even better. Uh, we've known for decades that cervical cancer is caused by the human papillomavirus, certain high-risk strains of that virus. And um, the, what has changed is we now have DNA tests that can confirm whether or not a patient has been exposed to one of those high-risk subtypes. And now our screening for cervical cancer is driven by that. So instead of a yearly pap smear, it's based on your family history. And what happens is the patient has a conventional pap smear, but we're also testing for the presence of high-risk DNA or, you know, the DNA of high-risk HPV virus and whether that's present or not. And what that has helped us do is we no, we no longer have to repeat that test annually. Uh, it's done every five years for low-risk women. And if uh, somebody has one of these atypical pap smears, which means the cells look a little bit funny, but we're not sure what it means, but we know if their high-risk HPV is negative, that that's a false positive. And so it eliminates... Mm-hmm the colposcopic exam, the biopsies, and all the things that we used to have to do when all we had were conventional pap smears. The other thing it allows us to do is even if the woman's pap smear is still normal, those those cells are all normal in appearance, but we see that they're high-risk HPV positive for one of those viral viral subtypes, we know we need to watch them more carefully because they're at higher risk in the next few years of developing a precursor lesion that could lead to cervical cancer. So it's revolutionized what we do. It's it's a much better way of screening. And and I think what we'll see is, you know, we're going to continue to see declines in the rates of cervical cancer. Nobody wants 14,000 new cases in the United States, but I will tell you, in terms of just general clinical practice, we, the, the patients that we see that have invasive, life-threatening cervical cancer, the vast majority of them have not had any type of screening in the last mm-hmm. one to two decades. Uh, you mentioned the DNA testing. Yes. And, of course, that's become a bigger and bigger thing. And, of course, we hear about that with the, was it the BRCA testing for mm-hmm. breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean. It, I think, you know, I think it's, I mean, it, the. Our ability to look at those those um, genetic mutations and the presence or it's a huge advancement. It's a huge advance. It's going to revolutionize medicine now. For I'm not an oncologist, but for our GYN oncologists and our medical oncologists that treat women with breast cancer, I mean they are typing a person's individual tumor cells 
and that allows the oncologist to pick the best miss the best excuse me the best mix of chemotherapeutic agents and adjuvant treatment options for those patients. So we're getting down to granular levels with a person's individual tumor, not just big, broad staging classification. So I think it's going to revolutionize uh, the treatment of cancer, and, and that's things that we are going to see in the next few decades, and it's really exciting. Yeah, and if you think about all the advancements we've seen in the last, say, five to ten years – Man, what does that mean for the next five to yeah, ten years? It's kind of exciting yeah. to think about. Yeah. We're visiting with Dr. Stephanie Cross. This is Women's Health Month. When we come back, we're going to talk more about women's health as you age, treatment protocol, how we can support the women that we love. We're also going to have our dollars and cents segment. Should your retirement plan care if there is a recession ahead? Stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living with Jim Brogan, right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. We're visiting with Dr. Stephanie Cross. It is Women's Health Month. Before we get back to Dr. Cross, it is time for Dollars and Cents. Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. Should your retirement plan care if there is a recession ahead? You know, a lot of focus on whether or not we are heading towards a recession. Uh, more and more economists in the last six months think we are not, but several do. There's still a lot that think we are. We really don't know. Uh, but the Fed is continuing to maintain high interest rates, probably might see another quarter point increase for the end of the year. Uh, probably keep rates higher for longer has been the theme. Uh, the Fed has been saying that all year, and I think the markets are just now believing that. Inflation is continuing to be persistent. Does this lead to economic slowdown? That's what the Fed is trying to do. The question is, how much do we slow down and does it generate a recession? And should you worry about that? Now, the intuitive response is, yes, of course your finances should care. I mean, if we know a recession is coming, we can adjust accordingly. Now, that's the problem is we don't know. And market bottoms typically happen about eight or nine months prior to a recession. Because remember, the stock market is a forward-looking indicator. It's looking at where we're likely to be in six to nine months. And so it's not as much looking at where we've been, but where what the data says we may be heading. And that's why you can see weird kinds of data come out and the stock market reacts strangely because the, the, the market is interpreting how does that affect things over the next three, six, nine months. So we really don't know, and we do know that time, the, the amount of time you're in the market is more important and is the real key 
rather than the timing of the market. You know, think about it this way. If your portfolio is built to withstand downturns and you've looked at risk and reward and you know your income is not going to be, your retirement income is not going to be impacted by market downturns, a financial plan shouldn't care if a recession is brewing or not. We do know there's a recession coming. We just don't know, is it in three months? Is it in a year? Is it in five years? But we have market swings. We have economic downturns. We have market market upturns. You know, if you look at everything that can happen economically, there's only four things to various degrees. I mean, our economy is either expanding or contracting and everything in between. And we have inflation or deflation and everything in between. Fundamentally, I believe very strongly we don't know when one cycle is going to end and another is going to begin. So financial plans will always need a diligent eye and an active hand, but there's also no telling the future. So staying attentive to your finances is certainly very important, but it's also important to construct a plan that takes the upside, the downside, and everything in between into account so that a recession does not blindside your ability to retire on your terms. That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com. Check us out online, BroganFinancial.com. We've got lots of resources there. My next class is at the University of Tennessee. It's this Thursday evening. Go to uh, go to uh, BroganFinancial.com and click on classes. It is a special one-night, one-night, two-hour class. Go, again, go to BroganFinancial.com, click on classes. It's this Thursday evening at the University of Tennessee Downtown Conference Center. Today we're visiting with Dr. Stephanie Cross, and we're talking about women's health. We've talked about several things. One of the things uh, that I do want to dive into a little further that you mentioned is uh, screening for colon cancer. Let's kind of dive into that a little bit and um, because really that's my understanding. That's one kind of cancer that if we screen and stay on top of it, we can it's preventable. It's very preventable. Yes, that's true. Um, uh, you know, cervical cancer, we touched on that last segment and it, it is preventable as well, which is why we, we, we uh, emphasize that colon cancer, the majority of colon cancer is also preventable. And I wanted to make, everyone aware of the the recommendations for initial screening it's changed it used to for average risk patients um, the initial age for colonoscopy or some type of colon cancer screening was age 50 Um, in the last few years they've actually dropped that recommendation to age 45 and so um Typically, you know, it depends off, obviously on your family history. Um, there are some genetic um, mutation syndromes like Lynch syndrome, things like that can, and can affect a person's individual risk for colon cancer. And for higher risk individuals, um, typically we uh, recommend colon cancer screening beginning 10 years before the age of their relative. So if they're mother was um, diagnosed at age 46, then their children, yeah, correct. Um, But for average risk patients, um, age 45 is now the new starting point. And uh, 
everybody kind of dreads the whole col- you know colonoscopy <laughs> thing um but it's really it's really not that bad um i don't know a couple people tell me it's the best sleep they've it's, ever it's great sleep the procedure <laughs> itself no one you know everybody you just yeah. wake up and it's awesome and it's done it's the night before that m- most people yeah. dread and it's not that bad and oh. actually now there's a a newer test called Cologuard, where which does not require a scope, and for certain patients, um, they can do that rather than have a colonoscopy. Low risk. Um, sometimes, especially when their initial scope is negative, they can go to Cologuard. They should just talk with their own physician about what's an option for them. Now we're talking a lot about screening, and a major challenge in. Really, all of our healthcare system today, and and certainly in women's healthcare as well, is access to care, whether it's due to financial or other reasons. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do the disparities in healthcare coverage? What are your thoughts when it comes to socioeconomics, other stigmas around women's health issues, and how that's all affected? Yeah, I mean, we 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 definitely see that. We see um, disparities in access to care, um, and certainly financial insurance. You know, lack of insurance coverage is probably the biggest factor there. Um, and, you know, those are giant uh, political discussions that go along yeah. with things like that. And, and, you know, we as physicians would love to love for everyone to just listen to us and do what we say in terms of covering it. And, uh, you know, the the insurance, the big giant insurance companies, we wish they would. Well, they've gotten harder and harder. They're, they're harder. They? And, you know, I'll probably get... Um, crucified but you know really we're, we should all be here for um, maximizing everyone's potential and I think those of us in the healthcare arena we get a little frustrated because we feel like we're jumping through administrative hoops to try to provide the right kind of care and screening for patients who really need it and sometimes I think we get a little frustrated with we want to look past next next quarter's stock price and really look at some things that would change um change the person's health care let's not look at short-term things let's look at long-term outcomes and yeah. those are difficult those are giant issues that are uh, monetarily you know make a giant impact and and i know it's a very complex process but it is fundamental in terms of we have a big segment of the population that just simply doesn't have access to care yeah i think that's hitting the nail on the head with the access on short term because it seems like all the emphasis with insurance companies is so much on treatment and not prevention. Mm-hmm. And there should be so much more on prevention, but that's a longer-term play. Correct. Right? Correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell you what, let's. Uh, we're going to get to our last break. When we come back, I want to talk about menopause. It's a very challenging phase for, for many women. Uh, what are some myths? What can you do about managing those mm-hmm. symptoms? Stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan as we visit with Dr. Stephanie Cross. This is Women's Health Month right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're visiting with Dr. Stephanie Cross. It's Women's Health Month. And let's talk about menopause. It's a very challenging phase for many women, Dr. Cross. Women can experience a range of uncomfortable symptoms over an average of seven years. 
but we don't talk much about menopause and how to manage the symptoms. So what are some myths about menopause and what are some ways women can manage the symptoms? Um, well, we have lots of options now. And I think what we, we want to focus on is, is dispelling the myth or urban legend, old wives tale, whatever, that it is a, quote, part of life and you should just get over it is what a lot of patients will come in that that's what they're, you know, they've grown up with that, mm. you know, don't complain. It's part, it's natural. It's going to happen and da, 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 you know, that sort of stuff. But it's really, you know, maybe, I mean, it certainly is a part of life, but, you know, our life expectancies are so long and, and, you know, you, Women, when they when you live to the age of fifty at best in the end of the eighteen hundreds or so, I mean, obviously it wasn't as big a factor as it is today. When women truly live at least a third or more of their lifespan past, you know, the age of where their ovarian function has has ceased, and so um, lots of symptoms, lots of disruptive symptoms. Uh, I think one of the, you know, the fa- the the Everybody hears about hot flashes um, and how disruptive that can be. Um, it varies from person to person in terms of how severe those are. And I think on, you know, on a day-to-day basis, one of the most disturbing, disruptive things is just the sleep disruption that happens. And so even if a woman is, doesn't wake up enough to tell that she's sweating and she's had a hot flash, it still interferes with their deep REM sleep. And when you look at days and days and weeks and weeks of symptoms and inadequate sleep and inadequate restorative sleep really makes a difference in terms of how women feel and how they function in the workplace. And there's some data that's starting to point that out compared to even 10 years ago when when nobody was really looking at cognitive function and how people felt. So um, we have lots of options. Uh, hormone replacement therapy, typically everybody's heard about, and uh, it's, it, it really makes a huge difference for women. Um, and in, even in women who are not candidates for that or women who want to avoid that, we have more and more medica- other medications that have no hormones but can help address the hot flash issues. There's a new one that just came to the market this year. Um, so... Um, talk about those symptoms, let us know, because there are lots of different ways that we can help with that. Dr. Cross, health care costs for, for employed women in the United States are estimated to be $15 billion greater than that for employed men. According to research by Deloitte, the financial burden adds to the wage disparity we see between men and women and persists even when maternity-related services are excluded. We still have a gap there. Uh-huh. Are you concerned about balancing the out-of-pocket costs for patients and decisions in trying to provide the best treatment available? Yeah. I mean, again, just like we talked about last segment, um, there are, I mean, health care is extremely expensive. The last data I saw, we spend about I think 16 or 17 percent of GDP or even more. You may know that number better than I do. But, I mean, the United States, our health care costs are crazy, you know. And the, it, it, we, we need to reduce that disparity. We need to do things to fill those gaps. And those are huge discussions that are, that are difficult um, problems to solve. Um, one of the things that we need to focus on, again, talking about preventive medicine and, and better health is 
a huge percentage of the healthcare dollar in the United States is spent on preventable diseases, things that relate to or the well, lifestyle related lifestyle or things. early detection. Early detection, but modifiable things, you know, in terms of what happens with our diet and obesity. And looking at obesity is not a willpower issue. It is a hormonal disease when mm-hmm. we're talking about insulin resistance and things like that. But it has huge effects on healthcare dollar, cardiovascular disease, complications of diabetes. Orthopa- orthopedic issues. Most more patients with obesity have to have hip replacements. So there's a lot of things that if we focus on a healthier lifestyle and we give people the tools and the ability to do that, that we can mitigate some of the some of the money that we're spending on things that otherwise we want to prevent to begin with. And uh, maybe that will help us also help fill some of the gaps in terms of access and inadequate coverage to allow patients to see physicians and sure. get the care they need. The average 65-year-old over their remaining lifetime will spend, on average, a little over $300,000 on their health care. Uh, now, that includes Medicare and insurance premiums and utilization cost, and it's actually pushing closer to 350000 So, you know, it is something that you know, of course, that's an issue with dealing with it in your income plan when you're when you're planning for retirement. But yeah, on healthcare costs, as a rule, are going up about double the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. and so it's a real issue. Um, but the disparity between men and women is alarming. Mm-hmm. And then you have the wage gap, and and then you got women sometimes staying home for periods of time with you know family, and then going back to work, and that that creates disparity in their social security benefits and all those things yes uh let's let's pivot a little bit dr cross you're one of seven obgyn academic hospitalists who serve as core faculty for our residence training program over at the university of tennessee what was the transition like as you transitioned into into a lot of teaching um, you know, for me, it's something I love. Um, and even in the earlier part, for 25 years, I was part of a, a private, private practice that was, was based at UT and um, started there when I finished residency in 1992. I was volunteer faculty, so I've always been in the teaching arena. You knew that it was something you loved. Yeah, Yeah, being able to convert, though, allows me to do a lot more of it and a lot more of it on a saner type of schedule instead of doing full-time private practice and throwing some teaching on top of that. Now I'm able to focus on it more. And it's, you know, it's really fun. uh, Teaching the the new generation, it keeps you sharp. You have to stay up to date. And... uh, um, it's something that I've always, always loved and, and, you know, something that I always appreciated for the mentors that, uh, helped me along my way also. So, yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, Dr. Cross, what should women do if they have questions or concerns about their health and about potential risks for cancer? Well, primarily talk to your provider, you know, talk to your um, primary care physician, your OBGYN. Um, if you see a nurse practitioner, you know, reach out to us, you know, and when, especially when you're talking about individual risks. There are a lot of really good resources out there. Uh, there are some bad resources on the Internet, so uh, you need to be selective in terms of what, you're, what sort of sites you're looking at. Um, there's a great website called Up to Date, which has a patient um, a patient platform as well as a platform that we as physicians use. American Cancer Society has great data. 
Um, there's several organizations around breast cancer that also have some uh, excellent resources on the Internet. Fantastic. Dr. Stephanie Cross, always a great friend of the program. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. My pleasure. It's always great to talk about Women's Health Month. Uh, thank you to Richie, engineering the show. Thank you to Jill, helping produce the show. You've been listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Have a very, very blessed weekend. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.